Hey everyone, Sean here. Just jumping in to apologize for how long it's taken this episode to come out. I know it's been a couple months, but we've been having a few hardware and software issues that have now been rectified, but it's taken a lot longer than we thought to get this episode out, and there was a period of time where we weren't sure it was even going to come out. Um, so I just wanted to thank you all for your patience, and let's get on with the episode. Thanks. Bye. Welcome back to another episode of the Weird Biology Show podcast. I'm your host today, your chief amphibian robotics evangelist, Dan. And I'm Sean, your favorite android that dreams of electric sheep. And today, we're going to be talking about frog robots. These goddamn liberals are turning the friggin' frogs into robots! Whoa, Alex, I didn't, didn't realize you were here today. <laughs> 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 All right, so today we're going to be talking about a research paper called A Scalable Pipeline for Designing Reconfigurable Organisms. This was a collaboration between the Department of Computer Science at the University of Vermont and the Department of Biology at Tufts University in Massachusetts. So what we're going to po talk about today is actually, quite literally, they made frogs out of robots. Well, they made robots out of frogs. Yeah, it's pretty pretty freaky how they how it's possible, right? Yeah, yeah, they made like little. I guess you can actually call them almost nano machines out of frog cells. Dear dear listener, please if you can just picture like a clump of cells, and then picture that clump of cells is like a tooth, but a tooth that can walk. That's what we're looking at here. It's they're very bizarre looking when you actually see them. Oh, absolutely. So. I guess where to start is they should actually cover machine learning because yeah, absolutely. if if any of you haven't heard of machine learning, it's actually kind of what the name implies. It's an algorithm or, you know, in layman's terms, a program that's capable of learning. Um, someone writes it to be able to take in data and, and learn, make predictions based on this data. And the reason we're going to talk about that a little bit is because... Their whole process here actually started with a whole lot of machine learning and algorithms, so I want everybody listening along to be able to you know, follow along and understand what's going on. Yeah. you got to build robots to make robots. <laughs> Essentially, or at least <laughs> program robots to make robots. So, like I already said, uh, machine learning is effectively what the name implies. You, know, you have a program that's capable of learning, revising, looking at data, making predictions. You have your standard program. It's programmed to take in an input, and return an action based on what you did. Uh, some of them are very advanced, can take in a lot of actions, or a lot of different actions, but at the end of the day, it's kind of, you know, predetermined what it's going to do, how it's going to react to what you do. Machine learning is kind of different in that, you know, it's going to take in different inputs, but it's going to change what it puts out in response. So that's really the big differentiation. Now, how this is useful is because, you know, we're, we're basically going to be talking about the beginnings of AI here today. Right. Um, so machine learning is basically what AI 
works off of. They use machine learning to then create something called deep learning, which is basically just machines mimicking the neural pathways of the human brain. It's fascinating, and despite having a bunch of experience trying to think about it, it still makes my head hurt. <laughs> it sounds spooky, too. It's, it's a little bit spooky. <laughs> <laughs> then they take this deep learning, which is basically them just mimicking the human brain with a program, and that's the basis for your AI, you know, your sci-fi shit, your HAL 9000. <laughs> Um, I'm afraid I can't let you do that, Dave. <laughs> In fact, I think um, I think it was recently, I don't know how recently, but relatively recently, they actually created an AI that beat some game master's own game. I forget what the game was. It wasn't I, chess. I, I was going to say, because there was that old Russian uh, comp- like supercomputer that beat a grandmaster like back in the 50s or 60s. Yeah, I'm going to say it was like Go or something like that, one of those games. But, but. By the way, it's crazy. You know, this is this is the future. The future is now. So we can't let the robots beat us at games we invented. Well, hopefully they're a pretty long <laughs> way away from that because uh, right now they're just little blobs of frog cells. Fortunately, yes. So I guess now, hopefully, you know, everybody <laughs> listening kind of has a basic idea of what's powering this thing because now we're going to start talking about how they made the robots out of frogs. So they actually had you know quite a complicated process actually. So. They start out with this machine learning algorithm I talked about. Um, they actually came up with an algorithm. It's kind of crazy, but they created a program to simulate the process of evolution. So they're basically putting stuff into their their algorithm. They're putting in building blocks like you know cells, organic materials, and what they want this organism to evolve to do. And they've got this algorithm that's just gonna that's just simulating evolution and you know giving them back randomly generated designs. So, you know, given this these organic materials, these cells in, and we want it to walk, we want it to move, we want it to grab onto objects. And they're getting back randomly generated designs that could come from the process of evolution from their building blocks to a multicellular organism. It's kinda crazy. So, so basically we're telling this computer, hey, here's a bunch of sandwich ingredients. Here's mustard, here's rye bread, here's white bread, here's bologna, here's peanut butter, here's jelly, here's ketchup. And they're just throwing us random sandwiches, most of which are vile. Right, so you could get back, you know, like, a peanut butter, ketchup, and bologna sandwich. And, <laughs> you know, you're not going to be too happy. Right. So that's that's not the that's not the outcome they're looking for. They they're get it they're back, trying to like, weed out those. They're like, this ain't it. This ain't it. <laughs> but, yeah, so, you know, that's that's only step one, though. So they're getting back to these random, right. the, this random, you know, assortment of organisms. Um, so then the next part after they do that is they're basically going to, like, open-world RPG sandbox this shit. <laughs> they're going to take these, these random generated designs, and they're going to run them through a physics-based simulation. So they're going to, you know, simulate them actually moving around in a real environment. Mm-hmm. And they're going to see if, you know, they can do the things that they were designed to do. Do they yeah, actually... Play Unreal Tournament. Yeah, so like I said, it's they're almost <laughs> like playing an open-world RPG with these little randomly generated designs. <laughs> you know, they're running them through this simulation to see, can they move? Does it look like they're going to be able to grab on objects? Does it look like they're going to be able to contract? Whatever it is they were designed to do. Mm-hmm. 
so and then here's where we filter out the vile sandwiches or the organisms that <laughs> you know that you look at and you're like yeah that's probably not going to work how did we get that anyway less than ideal right so at this point you know after these simulations happen the ones that suck <laughs> and don't really do what they were designed to do are removed okay so now, now do they remove them personally or is the ai recognizing based off the simulations hey these don't move in the most like i don't know uh, uh they don't move in the most efficient way well they're they're kind of scores so it's like you know you're open world sandboxing but someone's sitting there grading you on how well you're doing okay. um so they get a score and it's really just they're removed based on that score if they don't hit a certain threshold they're tossed 10 out of 10 Right, so, so they take away the ones that receive a poor performance score, and then those designs are overwritten by more random designs. So okay. they keep the good ones, they overwrite the bad ones. And then they do this whole process, simulate evolution, sandbox it, take out the bad ones, 99 times. So by the idea is by the end of these 99 repetitions of this whole process, you're left with nothing but a bunch of good designs, or theoretically good designs the ones that perform the best given the circumstances of the simulation yeah yeah so it's, it's a it's an important distinction though you know because they're they're simulated to perform well we haven't actually right, gotten right. the testing do they actually yet but you know this is the kind of the baseline of the whole thing that makes sense so that's step one they made the robots out of frogs made the robots out of frogs check that box Right, so step two now, we're going to move on to step two of their process, the robustness boogaloo. <laughs> Tell me about this boogaloo. So step two in this process is, you know, actually, it doesn't start to get super interesting yet. I mean, I mean the whole thing's kind of pretty interesting, but it doesn't get it's too intense yet. But <laughs> as I jokingly called it, the robustness boogaloo, that's actually kind of what's going on here. So they're going to take these designs, they're going to run them through what they call a robustness filter. Okay. So what they're trying to do here is now, it's great if they can do the thing that they're designed to do in a simulation. But in the simulation, you know, because there's limits to what they can do with the simulation, they're only testing or simulating. Can it do the thing it was designed to do without any sort of interference, right? Right. Because they need to, they need designs that are capable first before they test them any further. So the robustness basically means, you know, in scientific terms, they're going to run these designs through a filter to simulate whether they can continue performing their function in the face of noise. So mm -hmm. what that means in not science terms, for anybody who's never heard that before, they're basically just trying to mess with the thing and see if it can continue doing its, its job, its function, while they're messing with it. And that messing with it can come in the form of a whole bunch of different like environmental influences blast it with sound i mean they could blast it with sound literally blast <laughs> it with noise right but uh in these instances it usually more refers to something like you know they'll change the ph to be less than ideal they'll change something about the environment to be less than ideal and can these simulated designs keep doing what they're designed to do when they're messing with the environment because, you know, okay. it's great if it simulates well, but none of that matters if as soon as the environment is any sort of less than ideal, it fails. Right. Because then how are, you, how are you going to use that for anything practical later on? Right. 
and especially because if we're, we're we'll later talk about these being potentially used in medicine each person's body is slightly different from another so like if they don't work in multiple environments they don't really work do they Right, exactly. So if you know if they can't tolerate environmental perturbation, you know, what use are they? Useless frog bots. Yeah, <laughs> and we don't want no useless frog bots. It's true. We only want the most useful frog bots. Frog bots in disguise. So. Auto <laughs> <laughs> uh, toads and deceptive frogs. <laughs> I love auto toads and deceptive frogs. <laughs> All right. So, after they determine which ones are the auditors and which ones are the deceptive frogs, <laughs> we move on to step three of their process. Right. So, summarized so far, we've simulated evolution, we've open world sandbox to see if they can do their job, and we've seen if they can continue to do their job according to a simulation through environmental perturbation. So now we get to the step that you know when I was reading this, I kind of thought this would be step one but it it wasn't right <laughs> um step three is basically them sitting there saying well can we even build these things right um <clears throat> but i mean i guess i see marissa doing it both ways but they're basically now saying can, can we build these like is this possible because the algorithm that generates the designs while it takes in the building blocks mm -hmm. and the um and the intended job of these things, <clears throat> it doesn't really take into effect, into account any sort of like biological issues with creating these things, right? Because the end goal is these things are going to be built out of cells. They're going to be built out of actual living material. Just something that has to be considered. <clears throat> so right, and and the AI just tells you, hey, here's how the things that perform the best look, right? Yeah, careful, careful. You're, we're we're mixing up distinctions again, and I'm I'm only raising <laughs> or mixing up terms again. I'm only raising this point because it kind of goes on to the whole bigger issue. Okay. What's starting this thing isn't actually an AI; it's just a machine learning algorithm. So it's just right, one little right. part of what makes up an AI. And I'm okay. just I'm just making this distinction to kind of stress just how complicated these things can be. So this is a brain cell inside of a full ass brain <laughs> that's right. working on its own individual problem. Exactly. So you can think of it like that. The algorithm is kind of like, you know, the brain cell, the, the singular dot, the inside of the brain, the deep learning, which is the neural pathway simulation, which is inside of the person, the AI. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that works. It's not a perfect explanation, but it, it right. kind of gets the point across, you know? Yeah, yeah, I get it. So now they're, they're taking these designs that came through the robustness filter. They're like okay, this design works, it does its job, and it can continue to work if the environment is changing, if the environment's less than ideal. So now we're going to look at, can we even build this thing? So they're evaluating whether they can be built from two different standpoints, right? The first one's going to be suitability. So when they say suitability, they mean like, are the cells, the kind of cells they're using suitable to be configured like this? Right. Because so one of the big problems they were running into is that they would this algorithm would spit out designs that were way too concave or had too much concavity mm -hmm. or open space. 
And these designs worked in theory because they weren't taking into account the actual behavior of cells. Right. But they stopped working in practice because these things are being made out of stem cells, right? That's the only, mm-hmm. that's the only way you can kind of really get these things to develop into to anything because they're, they're made out of pluripotent stem cells from, I believe... They were, the scientific name is Xenoplus Labus, which I think is like the African clawed frog or something, which sounds yeah, a little yeah, bit it terrifying. Is. It's not that scary. It's pretty cute, honestly. I don't know. The name sounds kind of terrifying. <laughs> this is the class. Uh, but one of the characteristics of stem cells that you get is that they'll fill in these spaces, right? Mm-hmm. So like these designs, which are too concave, have too much open space in them. They're they're thrown out because the behavior of stem cells dictates that they're likely to close the spaces or right. fill in that concavity, and then the design's shot. It's not going to do what it's supposed to do anymore. Design integrity's gone, so they toss it. Got it. The other uh, design factor they're looking at for can they build it is what they call scalability. <clears throat> so they're using primarily two different kinds of tissue here. They were taking stem pluripotent stem cells as they're kind of soft tissue. And they were also using cardiac progenitor cells from the same frogs. So basically cells, embryonic cells that will naturally develop in the cardiomyocytes or like, you know, heart muscle. So they, they probably twitch. Right. Or contract because that's what hearts do. Right. That's exactly it. So the soft tissue is kind of like that kind of ties into the scalability thing. The muscle tissue isn't really a place where they can add things or add complex systems to these things. So, mm-hmm. as the name implies, they're not scalable for bigger, better, harder, faster, stronger things. Do it better, make it better. <laughs> and then we got sued by Daft Punk. <laughs> Please don't sue us, Daft Punk. This is only our third episode. We can't pay you. Oh, God. We can't, we can't go into debt to Daft Punk. <laughs> so... They, they're looking at these things, they're scalable. Um, and if the design, or if the algorithm spit out a design that has too much muscle tissue, for example, right, they're not going to be able to scale it up to do more complex things in the future because there won't be enough soft tissue to insert more complex systems because the soft tissue is where they would insert new systems or add things to the organism, to the design. Got it. Um, additionally, if there's too much muscle tissue... You know, as we've all been taught by bro science surrounding working out, muscle burns more calories than fat. Oh, I thought you were going to tell me you get too swole, you can't move. Like, you see those guys coming out of the gym with their trapezius all out of, like, a big-ass triangle coming out of their head, and they can't turn their head at all. (laughs) I mean, that's true, but in this case, the bro science was right. Your muscle tissue has a higher metabolic cost than soft tissue. So if these things are, you know, little tiny balls of muscle, then their metabolic cost is going to be too high and the lifespan of the organism is going to go down. And I mean, we'll talk about that a little more in a bit when we talk about like future implications. But if these things can't survive for very long, wherever their environment is, then they're not really going to be useful because they won't be able to do anything that matters. Mm-hmm. So that's step three in their process, figuring out if they can even build these things. Can we? Yes, we can. In yes. fact, yes. Step four tells us yes we can. So now they've got they've got it. You know they've got their plans. They've got their design. 
it's been simulated, it's been run through a robustness filter, it's been run through a build filter to determine if it's even possible and or worth building. So now we get to the, I guess for me, the interesting part, where they actually made little microorganisms, and they're not robots as we, you know, you traditionally think robot, you think, you know, bundle of circuits, completely electronic. Right. But there, there's nothing synthetic about these. <laughs> right, which is the whole point. You know, they're they're artificially they're designing you know, some might say they're actually kind of playing God a little bit and they're, a little they're bit, designing yeah. little organic life forms with a degree of intelligence. I mean, I guess there has to be a degree of intelligence in order for it to carry out a selected job, right? I, I it's so hard to determine whether or not it's like intelligent or if it's just doing a thing because it acts like there's always a chance it's accidentally doing a thing, right? Like, Hey, in one experiment we did, they just moved in circles, which ended up, they collected these little pellets. So did they know to collect those pellets or is that just how they moved in that environment? Like, cause I imagine difference in pH or like certain nutrients present, like, uh, if there's sodium and potassium present, that could change, you know, how the pumps in these cells are working, and it could cause these cells to, like, twitch and stuff. Yeah, and I mean, is it actual intelligence? I don't know. That's kind of more of a... Right. It's very philosophical, philosophical question. You, know, you can hear the discussion <laughs> on that. Tune into the Weird Philosophy Show podcast. Ooh, can't wait for that episode. I'm kidding. Wait, that doesn't exist yet. It, it exists. It exists. <laughs> don't let Dan lie but, to you. But that's, that's, you know, kind of... You get in a little bit of more philosophical, metaphysical discussion at that point. Are these things considered intelligent? I don't know, but they right. do a thing they were designed to do. So that that they do. Still, to a degree, they're they're creating organic life forms. They're they're creating life forms to do a job, and it's it's kind of crazy. Yes, it's absolutely crazy. So How close are we to Jurassic Park? Is what I want to know. But I guess uh, we'll get into that and the implications. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, after you know they've they've gone through these several filters of the design, now they're like, all right, well we filtered it. I guess let's try to build it. Um, so they basically take um, pluripotent stem cells. Um, so for anybody listening that's not familiar with you know stem cell te- terminology, pluripotent stem cells are basically stem cells that can become any body cell at all. These are the kind of stem cells when you hear the the big spooky stem cell research that is not really controversial anymore, but was for the longest time. These are the kind of stem cells they're talking about. Right. Because these kind of stem cells can differentiate into any body cell. So. So cool. So they take these stem cells and they harvest them from the blastula stage. That's just a developmental stage of the the frog embryo. It's it's a ball of cells. It's it's, it's basically, yes, a ball of cells. It's not quite hollow yet, because that's the next stage, but... They get them before they start to hollow, because once it starts to hollow is when the the cells start to differentiate into different parts. So yeah, they're they're basically taking these embryos when they're still a ball of cells, and they're they're harvesting these pluripotent stem cells before they can differentiate any further. Because what happens is these stem cells differentiate into new stem cell lines that they're not differentiated into their final cell type, but these next stem cells are they're set to become a certain kind of cell like this right. is going to become a skin cell or a muscle cell or a liver cell tooth cell and that's when you tell me that there's no such thing as tooth cells there's not a such thing as tooth cells sean i'm sorry well to fuck i've been you. lied to my whole life i i don't even deserve this degree anymore okay so then they get these 
they have these stem cells they're harvested they basically make a little pool of them right (laughs) and they just let them grow they let them grow divide until they've got the appropriate number of cells for the design they're trying to create so then after that they basically perform microsurgery on these things right they use little tiny forceps and wire cautery electrodes to either pull or burn cells out of this thing the, the, and, the pictures of this in in the paper are actually really cool it, i highly recommend any listener go check out this paper and if nothing more look at the pictures <laughs> they're, they're yeah. really bizarre if for anyone that doesn't want to do that, the, as usual, we will have the link to the paper in the description. Yeah. So I would highly recommend looking at some of the stuff. It's fascinating. But they're, they're basically performing microsurgery, like pulling cells, burning cells out of this thing. Until they've got a little cell blob that closely approximates or as closely approximates the simulated design as they can get. For the most part, they kind of look like the head crabs from Half-Life. Yeah, and it's actually a little bit disturbing. <laughs> Like that's really what they look like. They're they're like this weird little mound, and they've got these four little like node legs just coming off the bottom of them. They're very interesting looking. Yeah, and creepy. Uh, and creepy. <laughs> but so at that point, they've got a ball of well, I guess it's not a ball anymore. It's a head crab looking lump of <laughs> soft tissue, and then. They then take the... They need the thing to be able to move. So they take this head crab-looking lump of soft tissue, and they start layering or embedding the cardiac progenitor cells I mentioned earlier into this lump of soft tissue. And the idea there is that these are the kind of cells that evolve into, or develop into, not evolve, develop into cardiomyocytes. So it'll be muscle cells. So... Mm -hmm. They let these things move around by they put the they put the cardiac progenitor cells at appropriate points in the organism so that when these cells contract it'll cause the movement that's appropriate for their function. So like, you know, if it's you got your little head crab looking thing and it's gotta crawl around the environment, maybe it'll contract at the quote unquote legs so that the thing will move around. I kind of imagine them doing like a little like side to side shimmy, like they're moving their shoulders. Well, apparently they they tested quite a few different things. So, which leads me to the last step in their pipeline here. They filtered them, they've designed them, they built them. Now we have to test them. Test it up. So, up until this point, all the tests have been, if you recall, all the tests have been simulations, right? They don't yes. they don't know what's going to happen. So, they take they these designs. They just think they know what's going to happen. And the the word they used in the paper was these constructed designs are deployed, which deploy the boy. Because I imagine like a little squad of like these little frog bot blob things just being deployed into the environment to accomplish their mission. I love it. It's good imagery. Uh, so they basically unleash these things in an environment. I don't know. I don't know if they mentioned you know what exactly the environment was, but they were deployed in an environment, um, and they were tested to see. Okay, well. Now that we've got the things actually built, can they actually do the thing they were simulated to do? They actually observed several behaviors of these things. Because, you know, they, they didn't design the things to do just one thing. They had right. designs that were desi- designs that were designed to move. Or locomotion, right? So they ob- observed object manipulation. Designs that were designed to actually be able to, I guess, use their little head crab legs and move things around. <laughs> um... They were designed, some of them were designed for object transport. So can they grab some sort of molecule object 
and you know actually take it with them to somewhere else versus object manipulation which is like can they or just move something out of the way for example or just push something but object transport is like you know they're testing can they actually pick the thing up and take it with them right so, you know this is this is kind of important for any sort of future usefulness so they observed them for all these different behaviors and then they compared them to the simulation that i mentioned all the way back from step one the simulation mm-hmm. of can they do their job so what they're trying to do here is they're trying to you know this is where the the learning part of machine learning comes in because they're trying to teach their algorithm if you will right so they're taking the simulation score they're comparing it to the actual performance score mm-hmm seeing if they match up and then the algorithm is looking at other data points in design to basically it's basically trying to discern what features of these objects will result in good performance scores in actual testing not just simulation so in that way it's basically learning it's it's trying to figure out establish relationships between certain features be it cell placement uh number of cells Mm -hmm. uh strategic placement of an indent you can really pick any feature but it's basically just trying to discern relationships between the features of the yeah the features of the design and high performance scores so so basically the computer kicks out a score then we take it into the environment we will we build the shape that the computer tells us to build because it says hey these ones perform the best or should then we test them and then we give them our own grade, and then we take our grades, and we compare them to the computer's grades, and then tell the computer, hey, here's how they actually fared in reality. What are the similarities in the ones that performed better than all the other ones? So, like you were saying, it could be, hey, there's 12 more cells on this side, and for whatever reason, that actually makes it, you know, move more efficiently. Yeah, that's pretty much what's going on. The only important distinction there is that uh, we have to make sure that if we're giving them a score or grading their performance, we have to make sure that we're using the same criteria, the same grading scale right. as the simulation, because otherwise the results aren't comparable. Right. But yeah, that's effectively what's happening. And they're using this to teach their algorithm, you know, the, the learning part of their machine learning. And what this eventually does is that you eventually get designs that perform higher and you start being able to add constraints that you want your design to conform to in addition to just because the first iteration of this algorithm is just will it perform right right but as you gather more data and keep feeding it back into the algorithm then you can then do stuff like okay well we want it to perform but additionally we need it to have this shape right because what that allows you to do is create specialized i guess we'll call them organobots for whatever purpose you you're trying to to fulfill like let's say you and this is going to get into you know future implications a little bit let's say you're sending these things into someone's body right to deliver something to Mm -hmm. do something you need them not only to like for example you need them not only to be able to transport something so that's object transport right Mm -hmm. but you also need these things to be less than a certain size otherwise they can't go where they need to go right they also need to be able to figure out where to go (laughs) right so that's that's the kind of thing you start getting into once you start you know feeding the data back into the algorithm because now you can say whereas we started with oh we needed to do this function 
now you start being able to say, oh, we need to do this function, but also we need it to meet these specific requirements. Right. It's really so that's cool. the whole learning process. And that's the whole process. And, you know, broken down, I guess it's not as, <clears throat> it's not quite as advertised making robots out of frogs, but it's, it's really kind of crazy that there's, this is kind of like one of the big stepping stones into like actual artificial intelligence because it's made yeah. out of organic material, but they're effectively creating artificial intelligence here. Will we ever get to a part in society where the T-1000 is hunting down humanity to destroy it? <laughs> Except this time, the T-1000 is made out of frogs. <laughs> Deceptifrogs. Deceptitoads? Autotoads and Deceptifrogs. Yes. But, yeah, so, you know, that all being said, that there's basically, you know, that's the results of their paper. That You know, the results were, you know, our process works. Right. You know, we're able to run it through this pipeline, and it works. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's obviously currently very labor-intensive because they're physically building them their, themselves by, you know, cutting and placing cells. Right. But, you know, something like this is, you know, it's... It's kind of crazy as far as the future implications go because this is this is basically the sci-fi movies, the sci-fi crazy stuff, you know, that started popping up in the 80s when sci-fi really started mm. booming, 70s, 80s. This is this is it. Like, you know, they're they're creating artificial life forms and you know, one of the big uses they mentioned is I know there has been previous research with like, you know, bacteriophages, the, you know, the Right, yeah. The precursor to, like, nanobots, I guess. Um, but this is... That's kind of what they had in mind when they were talking about all this stuff. You know, they hope... I think this was a, a thought mentioned in the paper. Is they, they hope to get to these... To the point where they could use something like this to create organisms to manipulate things inside the body, you know? Yeah, I, I saw... They were talking about, like, this could be the future of cancer drug uh, delivery. Like, you know, here's these little creatures we're going to pump into you. They can find the cancer. They can destroy the cancer because, I don't know, we attached, you know, certain cells to them that will just break down cancerous cells. Um, it's it's really impressive stuff when you think about it. Like, this, this could be a, a game changer if we can get it to a, a point where these can, things can just be manufactured. Right, and... and- and the even the even bigger deal is like targeting. It's targeted. Like right. if, if these yeah, things totally. work the way they want them to, that would get one of rid of one of the biggest drawbacks of like you know going with the cancer treatment. One of the biggest drawbacks of widely used treatments for cancer right now is that it's not targeted. It's kind of just right. like they shoot gonna... your body with radiation and yeah. hope it kills the cancer more than it kills you. Right, and that's obviously. <laughs> incredibly taxing on a person's physical form like you, right. you're not going to be a healthy person after chemo right that's, unfortunately that's... you're not going to turn into dr manhattan or something yeah but so that's... this this could change change that game like here's we don't have to be damaging people anymore to heal them or in in hopes of beating the cancer before we can you know kill the person right and this could this could possibly change the landscape of several different like you know inside the body manipulations like anything that was invasive this technology could come along far enough you know maybe procedures that are invasive treatments that are invasive can become less so because if they can get these things reliably doing what they need them to do they just inject you with a bunch of frog bots 
and have them do the job <laughs> instead of whatever, however they were going to do it before. And I need know. frog bots to eat my tonsils and appendix. Problem solved. Sounds disgusting. <laughs> but like, what's really cool about them is because they're stem cells, they're they're not indestructible, but they can rebuild themselves. Like they're really hardy cells to be using in this type of thing. So it's like, okay, let's say you know somehow in the delivery method they get a little bumped up or bruised up they can put themselves back together like you know you don't have to worry about these things being damaged over time because they're just going to keep fixing themselves yeah but then you get into like well how do you tell it when to stop fixing <laughs> right <themselves? laughs> all is, of a sudden you are the t-1000 made out of frogs oh man i can't wait to be the t-1000 made out of frogs I, I don't think you want to be the t-1000 made out of frogs sean so what else can can we do with this type of like nanobot technology besides the fact that we've we haven't even touched on the fact that we're creating life is this a species now is like is this real life? Like, what constitutes real life? I don't know. This is like this is some sci-fi shit. Like, this is yeah. the beginning <laughs> of art, the creation of artificial life forms. Like, like they have cloned things before, sure, but I put that in kind of like a different category because this is they're just like legitimately simulating evolution to design a life form. They're not right. making a copy of something that's already there with like literally building blocks like mind you they're not currently altering dna but feasibly in in the future they could because because the way that it sounds like the the ai is working is it's looking at the cell's genetic code and it's using that genetic code to create shapes body shapes well they're not they're not quite there yet it's not actually looking at the genetic code it's just kind of looking at the the cells and lumping them together yeah but feasibly, in the future, it could be looking at the genes and say, like, hey, we could literally grow these if we have this gene sequence in this order. I mean, that's not too far-fetched, because there's already a whole lot of machine learning uh, right. uh, surrounding genetic analysis. Um, I I mean, even I have worked in the past with some machine learning stuff doing genome analysis. So mm-hmm. it, it's not too far-fetched, because the technology already exists. Right. Like, it, it, it would... I'm sure that's probably already sequenced to be honest, but like, yeah, it's, it's really possible that feasibly there will come a time where people do not have to do microsurgery to create these nanobots or xenobots or frog robots. You could just grow them in a Petri dish. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I really could. And that's how eventually we wind up with total recall. All kinds of crazy stuff. But yeah, I think this is, this is the beginning of, I guess what could turn out to be a very, very prolific field of research in the coming years, depending on where they go with this. I mean, there's there's still a lot of hurdles because there's still, you know, it's a far cry from putting blobs of cells together in a way determined by a an algorithm to getting independently functional artificial life forms that you can grow right so like they're they're not even close to that especially considering like you know what they're doing right now is basically burning or plucking right (laughs) blobs of cells to be in the right configuration they're playing with micro play-doh basically yeah yeah they're playing with moving they're playing with basically microscopic flubber 
<laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it's a good analogy. It's it's this you know artificial biological life that's capable of doing simple tasks and could have major ramifications, positive ramifications, uh, hopefully, <laughs> in in the medical field. Like some amazing stuff that could be done with this. I, mean, I for one, I'm I'm pretty excited to see where this kind of technology goes. I've always been really interested in the machine learning, you know, AI kind of stuff. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm really looking forward to seeing where the scientific community might be able to take this kind of stuff. Yeah, I I totally agree, and I I think to keep pushing this forward, you need to talk to your politicians about allowing stem cell research. Yeah, End no. of story. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> So that about wraps up this paper. It's super interesting. I highly recommend you guys read it. You know, the paper's going to be linked down in the uh, uh, episode description. Please check it out. That was just an interesting dive into frog robots and the future of artificial life. But that about does it for the scalable pipe a scalable pipeline for designing reconfigurable organisms so now i'm going to throw it <laughs> over to you sean for this week's featured creature thank you dan this week's featured creature is venus's flower basket what is that sean these are a species of deep sea glass sponges they're made out of glass <laughs> actually kind of yes so this genus of sponges called uh Euplectella, and they are typically found between a hundred and a thousand meters depth, generally speaking. And they are like these really gorgeous, stark white tubular sponges that are made of like this really beautiful hard lattice. Gorgeous is not a word I ever thought I would hear used to describe a sponge, but go on. <laughs> yeah, gen- generally speaking, you wouldn't. On average, they're about 25 centimeters long, so roughly 10 inches. And some species can even live to be between 11,000 and 15,000 years old. The eternal sponges. The eternal sponges. Um, So they actually got this name, glass sponge, because of the siliceous spicules that make up the rigid lattice. So siliceous meaning that they are made from silicon. So same stuff that makes up sand and glass and, you know, a lot of electronic bits now. So oftentimes these sponges actually have like they become the permanent houses for uh, a species of deep sea shrimp like basically the shrimp gets in there when it's you know a wee juvenile and then it gets stuck in there because the kind of uh the sponge closes as it ages so generally speaking there is a male and female shrimp in a lot of these sponges so uh in japan they were actually given as wedding gifts for a really long time and probably still in more traditional families because the sponge was viewed as a cage like these shrimp were married and there was no escape but death <laughs> so they're eternal kidnapping sponges well i mean they don't they don't kidnap them they house them they house them that's a the nicer way of putting it oh, they house them but they can never escape so yeah these these were a really popular wedding gift in japan for a while Um, And it's kind of like their version of Death Do Us Part, um, because there is no escape from the glass sponge. (laughs) (laughs) Till death or imprisonment within a glass sponge do we part. (laughs) Till death do us part, and the sponge devours our corpses. 
<laughs> Thank you all for joining us. That's been our featured creature. Dan, take it away. All right, guys, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you all for joining us. As always, our theme song is by Sean's brother, Jesse Ricca. You can find him on Instagram at Jesse Ricca. As always, if you guys enjoy listening to the podcast, subscribe to us on Spotify and Google Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for updates. If you want to share any ideas with us, if you... If you've seen something you would like us to discuss, or if you just want to share what you think of what we've done so far, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And if you or a loved one is hearing impaired, our YouTube channel now has our episode with auto-generated closed captions. Tune in next time and see some more weird shit. Bye. Bye. Bye.